Hi, Jace. Hi, Bex. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. It's really exciting. Everyone is very excited that you're here. A lot of people who listen and know the podcast have told me over the years that you got to have Bex on. You and Bex. Oh, my goodness. Some people even say you and I should have our own Own podcast podcast together. I know, but this is like setting the bar high. I feel a bit nervous now. Man, when you have a massive listenership like we do, Bex, we have to keep feeding (laughs) the beast. How many listeners do you have at this point? Thousands. Thousands. All across the world as well. We do. In fact, uh-huh. you're on today, really, you know, I mean, For the I British love you, audience. but I want to feed the British. <laughs> there is a British audience. I'm sure there is. And specifically, I want to target the Cricklewood area. Right. I think you have a huge listenership in Cricklewood, Northwest London. And I think this, is let- going, this episode is going out to all of our fans. I don't know. Cricklewood. Will your family listen to a podcast that you're on? Because no. some people come on the pod and then they say, my family doesn't even listen. No, my family won't listen. My parents have no idea what a podcast is or how to access it. They definitely won't. I send them podcasts occasionally. Really? And they just say, hmm, that's very nice. And they read they read the version of the daily instead of listening to it. Wow. That's great. Good. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Well, we're here today to talk about Harold and Maude, which was a film that you chose. Yep. Now, in season two, I'm trying out different catchphrases. Yesterday, I had a guest on and I said, I'm bringing on people I love to talk about movies they love. I loved that when you wrote that. I thought that was great. You think that's great? Yeah. Okay. You, have you got another one that's better? Uh, I don't know. Today, I'm trying out Bex, full cast and crew. It's me, you, and the movie. Oh, I like that too. I don't know. Oh, that's that's good. No, I, I like that. I think people I love about movies they love. It's just beautiful. What a nice way to start the new year okay. as well. That's I'm going to go with that. It's full of love. You're the first episode of season two. Okay. Well, I'm honored to be uh, here. Harold and Maude, you're from England, as we've noted. Yes. You came I to am. the United States in 1990... 1997. And you were how old then, if you don't mind I asking? I was 14. No, I'm joking. I was... <laughs> I was 22 okay. when I got out to think about that. That's a long time ago. So you were 22 in 1993. So that means that your formative years, your teenage years. <gasps> no, wait, that's wrong. <laughs> I can't remember. Wait, your it's math wrong. is as bad as it's mine. It's really this bad. This is fantastic. I know that I saw Harold and Maud for the first time uh-huh. when I was 19 and I was at college then. Okay. So that would make it kind of 95. Okay, so you saw it in, okay, so you saw it okay. in 95 and like yeah. many of us experiencing content from the 70s and the early 80s. You're coming to it 10, 20 years after the fact. Right. But the power of films like this is that it has the power to redefine itself. It's about the philosophy of the movie, Mm. perhaps more so than the moviness of the movie. We'll get into that. The film was famously a bomb at the time Mm. and then took on this really impressively outsized reputation subsequent to. So did you see this? You probably, did you see it in a, a theater as I part did, of a I re-release? That's I fantastic. saw it in a movie theater. And also, I feel like I have to say, just right off the bat, that next year, Harold and Maud's going to be 50 years old. God. And that really makes me crazy. feel hugely old. 1971. 71. But when I think of films from the 70s, I always think that they happened 30 years ago. I know. In my mind, that's like 30 years ago, not yes. 50 years ago. So that's just, I feel like that's pretty huge. Okay, did you see it in an art house cinema? I did. I actually uh, worked at an art house cinema. Cue, really? Cue laughter. Yes, I did. I worked. Oh, I love this. <laughs> but two years in college, I was at university um, in the north of England in Leeds. Yes. In Yorkshire. And I ran the late show at a art house cinema in Leeds for two years. Oh, I love it. It was this. amazing. Wait, what was the late show? What time? It was midnight. It was a proper midnight start. So you had to, what time, what were your hours? I worked, well, when I did that on Saturdays, I got in at 10 and then I left at 
three. Bloody hell, as Bloody you would say. Bloody hell. It was Wait, very tiring. Three? Yes, it was very long. And then go home. And then go home. After then... I'd cleaned up some of the sick. Oh. That was one of the jobs. <laughs> it's true. Tell so me the, some of the after hour, the so late, the late night show shows that often, you had. Well, it was usually the same films. It was usually with Nell and I or The Exorcist. Oh, okay, right. So you had one film that was programmed for weeks, yeah. for months. And then occasionally- and he would change it up. He would change it up. The guy who ran it would change Jesus. it up. Jesus, with Nell and I to The Exorcist? I, I mean- I know. So The Exorcist was- Particularly the one where I had could to you smoke so, in the theater? You, not only could you smoke in the theater in the balcony, <laughs> but it still remains because it was built in over a hundred years ago. It remains the only movie theater in Britain that's lit by gas lamps. Still, <laughs> so my job was to light the gas Wait a lamps. Minute. Still to this day. <laughs> to this day, still. I, I checked just to be sure. Um, wow. I had to when I arrived. I had to light the gas lamps in a Dickensian manner with a special kind of long. These were out. Outdoor. Inside, no. Inside? Inside, up in the balcony, <laughs> just waiting to burn down the whole place. When people smoked, people smoked right so by the gas So if lamp. I showed up for, say, like a Saturday night fever reboot, yeah. I would have like soot on my all white it, suit. Yes, exactly. Wow. Just covered in all the stuff that came off the That disgusting. is fantastic. Yeah, it was amazing. So what, um, was your ta- what was your role? What was your job? Were you the manager? Were no, you the night I was manager? The manager? You were, you were no, taking tickets? I was just, I took, so my role was to light the aforementioned gas lamps. <laughs> With the my Dickensian, cloth, yeah, the Dickensian childhood. Exactly. Wow. Light the gas lamps, sell the tickets, uh-huh. which essentially meant let all my mates in free, <laughs> uh, who all kind of hid around the corner uh-huh. and jumped the line, and um, serve popcorn. Wow. That's, that's basically what I did. And then and then clean up the sick after the exercise. Oh, God, seriously? Yeah, yeah, I know. It was bad. People was would always, puke? Well, because people were really drunk. It was full of students. They were very drunk. Okay, I understand that and for maybe with Neil and I, but not for the exercise. I know. They were scared, I think. Really? The power of Christ compels you! So that's where you first saw Harold and Maude. Yes, and I'd never heard of it. What were you into at this time? What did you look like? Were you a goth, stoner, jock? Pretty much, yeah. Like shoegazer. A, 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 <laughs> that's what you. That's a British term, isn't it? A shoegazer. Yeah, have you heard what that? What's that? That's like someone who's into that really like slow dirge, like sad music. Shoegaze. That's a that's what, a like British a, musical what, term. Like indie. No. No, like what makes uh, it like like shoegaze? fade into me, that type of, sh- oh, of shoegaze, I believe. Oh, like what like kind of trip hop, like Paul's no, head. No, we're gonna no. go on this for a long time. I can't believe you don't know this. I don't know this. I'm gonna have to go. You're Google a musicologist. It. How You're... do I not know this? I've maybe I was just, you know, sitting yeah, in the I'm back gonna, watching Harold and Maud. Shoegaze. Google it. Okay, so you know how like they have Northern Soul and yeah, other yeah. fashion? Shoegazing. In initially known as Dream Pop. Huh. Is a subgenre of Indian alternative rock that emerged in the United Kingdom in the late 1980s. Well, obviously, I was just sitting up in the balcony <laughs> cleaning up the scene. It's characterized. I miss that. By its ethereal <laughs> sounding mixture of obscured vocals, guitar distortion, and effects, feedback, and overwhelming volume. For example, who? Give me examples. I guess I actually have it wrong. When I okay. cited the example that I cited was right. wrong. Uh, my Bloody Valentine oh, is an yes, example. My Bloody Valentine. Black Glaze. Never heard no, of that. I don't know about that. List of shoegazing musicians. Yeah, uh, I want some more. My Bloody really? Valentine. Okay, yeah. Lush. Okay. Bardo Pond? No, I think this all... Drop 19s? No, no. The Verve? Oh, the Verve. Really? So it went That's on for a while. That's what it says here, but this is Wikipedia. It went from My Bloody Valentine all the way Swerve to Swerve Driver? Okay. Well, no, I don't think I was a shoegazer. Okay. I think so what I were was, you? You um, were earnest. I know that. I was very earnest. This was the perfect film for me. <laughs> I was already wearing the sort this of... This isn't an earnest film. This is a no. blackly, darkly I know, I'm satirical... Thinking, but I'm thinking of like what I was into and how I dressed. Right. And so, you know, this... Give us a visual. What, okay, what so I was, I was probably wearing pretty much what I'm wearing in honor of the film today. <laughs> 
So today we can do a little fashion digress. I'm wearing some florals. I've got mm-hmm. a floral number on, yeah. like a floral print dress. So kind of like a um, yeah, like a grungy dress okay. I would have been wearing yeah. with some Doc Martens. Doc I'm not Martins. wearing Doc Martens today. Would they I'm be not. the lace-up high-top Doc Martens or the regular shoe? Oh, no, the lace-up high-top okay. ones. Yeah. And they were just straight black Doc Martens? No, or would they you were go the, with the kind of purp- the purple, the ready purple Ready purple, ones. okay, yeah. Yeah. Got it. So those and some sort of cardigan. I was definitely wearing, which I'm wearing today. And today I've actually matched the cardigan with some leg warmers. I'm wearing leg warmers too, in honor of Maud, because I think she would have worn leg warmers. Do you remember who you saw this movie with when you saw it the first time? I saw this movie on my own. Okay, now. Yeah, on my own. I think there are certain types of movies Mm. where that experience is paramount for me. Yep. It was seeing Brazil at the York Square Cinema in New Haven by myself. Yeah. So immersed in the movie and then walking out into the world again and seeing it with totally new eyes because of the movie. Did you have that type of experience? Absolutely. And, you know, I was really into going to the cinema on my own. I've been doing it through the end of high school in London. um, And it was an experience that I loved. And, yeah, I saw this on my own at midnight. So I could just sit back and enjoy it. And I will never forget the, the opening credits mm. and Harold's first on-screen suicide attempt and he drops the needle yeah. on Don't Be Shy, yes. Kurt Stevens. back and you see him in his fantastic blazer and mm-hmm. his and his tie and I was hooked right from that first minute I just thought this is the most incredible and then of course it the you know pulls back and reveals that this is a fake suicide attempt yeah. and he is tricking his amazing mother so yeah that was my first experience of Harold and Maud and I did come out changed I came out of my uh, art house cinema in Leeds thinking the world looks really different today and uh, and it's never been the same since Colin Higgins, who famously, this was his first screenplay, has one of those only in Hollywood stories where he was in film school and he was working as a pool boy and he showed a draft of Harold and Maude, which I think at the time he had intended just to be a short. He showed it to film producer Ed Lewis, who showed it to Robert Evans, who at the time was a big wig at Paramount. And that's how he, that's how this thing went through the machinations to become a go project, as they say in Hollywood. And that scene that you refer to, the brilliant opening scene, was very much what Colin Higgins had in his screenplay. Hmm. This is one of those movies where if someone hasn't seen it for the first time, you're sort of jealous. You're glad for them because they get to have an experience that you you and I can't really have because when we watch that now, you're sort of, you're watching it for how it's put together and the meticulousness of showing us this fake suicide, which you don't know is fake until until after the fact. And all the more impressive for 1971 starting a movie in such a deadpan kind of, like I said, black comedy way where you're just sort of like, holy shit, where are we going? Where is this going? Yeah. And that tone continues for, I mean, at least the first 25 minutes or so throughout those early, you know, fake suicide attempts that are really kind of dark as well. They're very dark. I mean, is this, is it, Am I correct in assuming this is one of the first black comedies? 
Well, I would. I don't. No. God, I don't know if it's one of the first. I was trying to think of other examples. Well, from... I mean, the immediate touchstone in terms of sort of disaffected youth movies mm. would be The Graduate. Right. Which is, I believe, 1967. So that's a number of years before this. But that's not as dark. I mean, well, it's... It's not as dark, but it has a lot of similar rejection of parental values. It doesn't have quite the, you know, you're an oddball and that's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the things this movie has always spoken to people about is that sense of otherness yeah. and not fitting in and that ultimately being okay. Yep. Let's watch a clip. Let's do that. I was going to see the scene where Harold meets Maud. your name? Harold. Harold Chasen. Oh, how do you do? I'm Dame Marjorie Chardin, but you might call me Maud. How do you do? Nice to meet you. Well, thank you. I think we're going to be great friends, don't you? Can I give you a lift, Harold? No, thank you. I have my own car. Well, I must be off. We shall have to meet again. Uh... Tell me, if you don't, Pardon me? Do you sing and dance? Uh, no. Uh, no. I thought not. <laughs> that woman! She took my car! A few tidbits that I have for you, Bex. Okay. In this scene, number one, Ruth Gordon never could drive a car. Really? So no driving <gasps> scenes. No Ruth Gordons were harmed in any driving scenes. That's amazing. Number two, prior to this, uh, they're at a funeral. They're inside a church. They're sitting in the pew. There's a close-up of a coffin of the deceased, and it says Perma Seal, which mm-hmm. is the brand of the coffin. Right. And Hal Ashby, the director, became so obsessed with this bizarre sort of commodification of death represented in, like, a snappy slogan mm-hmm. that you are— perma-sealed in your crypt for all time. <laughs> he was like, we have to get a close-up. So there's a close-up shot of that little logo, the perma-seal logo, which huh. I love that type of stuff. Yeah. And then I believe the production manager on set told Hal Ashby a story about his father's funeral mm-hmm. where randomly a high school marching band walked past in performance during his father's very somber funeral. Oh, and Hal Ashby <laughs> thought that was such a great touch that they used that just prior to this scene. Oh, of course. And there's a marching band happens, that walks yes. through. Did you have a connection to one character or another the first time that you saw it or now? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot, actually, because I was the same age as Harold when I first saw it. I was 19. Is he supposed to be 19, 19 in the movie? Going on Do 20. they establish that? Yeah, that he's going. Okay. He's 19 going on 20 and she's 79 going on 80. We yes. know that, right? Okay, right. So um, I think it's really interesting to reflect that I felt a huge connection to Maud immediately, even though I was the age of Harold. And, you know, I think Maud, I've been thinking about this so much because I've been concerned when I rewatched it last week that it wouldn't resonate mm-hmm. in quite the same way or I wouldn't identify with Maud. And it hasn't changed at all. Mm-hmm. I feel as much love and warmth and empathy and for Maud as I did then. And I'd yeah, I, I think I, I think I aspired to be Maud like. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I, I, you're doing a pretty good I run up. I mean, I think by the time you get there. Yeah, but when I was 19, I really imagined that my 80 year old self would keep birds and live in a train car and <laughs> picnic on construction sites and, you know, liberate trees. I came out 
of the cinema and I was kind of shell-shocked from yes. this remarkable experience. But there was nowhere to look up anything about the film. Pre-internet. Uh, Pre-internet, exactly. Yeah, um, what did I we do then? I couldn't get a copy of it anywhere <laughs> either. <laughs> and so it just seemed very dreamlike. Wait, like 95, I, we must have had DVDs. Was, yes. yes no, there was a, but you there couldn't was go a, to Amazon and just buy one online. No. So I had to wait. And it was also the middle of the night. So I had to wait. You wanted to own it right then. I immediately wanted a VHS. No 24-hour tower records? No, or, uh, no. Not in, not in the, this mm. part of Yorkshire, no. So I had to wait and then go to one of those amazing old... Uh, DVD. I'm trying to think if life is better now that you have instant gratification, like you could literally on your phone be yeah. leaving the theater and, and, and have the DVD or the download waiting for you. I know. I think about this too, and I miss it, actually. I miss that feeling of learning little snippets about bands and films mm -hmm. through what people shared with you in the pub or right. at the library where I would go to, mm -hmm. I went to actually went to the library to take out vinyl <laughs> and would kind of, if they didn't have, you know, a Violent Femmes LP in, I would just kind of look at the index card and imagine what the band was like based on the image. So the same sort of thing with right. a movie. After I'd seen it, that was it. I had no way of, of, of obtaining it or seeing it again. By this point, I loved all American films. Really? I was fully immersed. Fully immersed. Fully immersed. I'd gone through the John Hughes, mm -hmm. you know, obsession. And I was, yeah. I was you were in America. What? So Anglophile, Americanophile, what do they have? Yeah. Do they have a term for it? No, because we hate people like that. But <laughs> <laughs> we just miss them readily. Nobody wants to admit Nobody... that they admire America. Oh, but I loved, and certainly in the 80s, I loved, I loved everything American. Like Pretty in Pink? Mm, loved Pretty in Pink. See, it's funny because loved... you have this sort of anarchist soul, but I then know. you like worship the most over-sentimentalized kind of high school. Well, because there was nothing like it. So, you know, Pretty in Pink... I guess, you know, my high school experience in London was like, you know, The Breakfast Club if Mike Lee had directed it, <laughs> <laughs> you know. That I would love to see. Yeah, so would I, actually. That would be amazing. Maybe we can he should suggest, do a remake. We should suggest He's still around, that. right? He is. I'm going to write him. You know, it's funny you say that about sort of looking through the card catalog. I was thinking that one of my formative experiences around the same time was video store related because browsing was how you discovered things. Exactly. It wasn't like you just did what everybody on social media told you to watch. Right. Or that it was recommended for you on Amazon along with your other picks. Exactly. So you would go to the video store and you would, you would if you were me, you would just take an hour to selectively browse and make decisions based on an arcane set of criteria, which could be cover art, blurbs, yep. staff recommendations. There used to be a way of like, oh, well, Toby's working tonight. He's usually pretty good. Uh, okay, I'll take a chance on something like that. And that's how I would get into these 90s American things like Hal Hartley films, Hal which I'm Hartley, sure you were yes, into at the exactly. time. exactly. Go straight into those. But those video store recommendations were tough too because there was often – the guy who worked in the video store who would who would kind of harass you to watch certain things that sure. he liked. And then I would end up feeling really pressured to take home, you know, obscure Italian really films that I didn't yeah. want to see when actually I just wanted to watch, you know. It's like the Jack Black character in, right. uh, whatchamacallit, what movie is that? High Fidelity. High Fidelity, Exactly. Yes. It's exactly like that. Come on, dude. Play it. Don't you want to hear what's next? What's next? Play it! Say it. Little Latin loopy loo. <laughs> Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels? No! The Righteous Brothers. Well, never mind. No, not never mind. You tell me right now what's wrong with the Righteous Brothers. Nothing. I just prefer the other. Bullshit! One. How can it be bullshit to state a preference? 
So it took me a while to get a VHS copy, but it always seemed to me like it was incredibly out of place as a as a counterculture film from 1971. You it, mean out of place in your time or out of place, out of place at any time? time? At any time. At any time. And I think that's one of the reasons it's held up so well, is it doesn't seem to me that it speaks to what was going on in mm-hmm. in California in 71, necessarily. Right. You know, you think right. about kind of yeah, Altamont and yeah. Nixon and Vietnam and but it's got all these these threads in it that connect it to its time but it seems you know in some ways out of time well there's there's a negative review of the film oh dear. from Roger Ebert at the time oh dear. who really? famously only gave it one and a half out of four stars why well What's wrong with the man? I will quote it to you okay. he said what we get finally is a movie of attitudes Harold is death, Maud life, and they managed to make the two seem so similar that life's hardly worth the extra bother. Now, the part of that that I think is actually speaks to what you're talking about in a positive sense is that it's a film of attitudes, a movie of attitudes. In that, I mean, it's not so much the performances per se to me. I think it's the, I mean, yes, Ruth Gordon is Ruth Gordon and is amazing almost always in everything. Mm-hmm. The movie itself as a movie, as a piece of screenwriting, as a piece of directing, as a piece of editing, as a piece of cinematography, I, I would have some I, I would take some issues with it. It's not it's not good in a lot of those ways. So t- but but tell me more about what you mean. Well, it's give me some examples. OK, so here's an example. Like Colin Higgins was a first time screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Colin Higgins would go on and write a lot of very successful movies. Silver Streak. Mm. Uh, nine to five, mm-hmm. huge hit movies. But this was a first time script. And I think you can feel that in yep. the final result. Hal Ashby, although he had won an Academy Award as an editor for In the Heat of the Night prior to this, this was his second film. And I don't think Hal Ashby is yet the Hal Ashby of being there, shampoo, coming home, you know, the mm. kind of era-defining movies that I think he would be known for over a couple of decades. I agree, but I also think that the the seed of what he is best known for in so many ways, which is these naive heroes, that's right there. That's there. And and I suppose, you know, you could be very critical in a Roger Ebert way and say that this is a sort of precursor to Wes Anderson's remove. And yeah, I mean, there would be no Wes Anderson without Harold and Maude. Well, that's a very good example because I would say Rushmore, which owes a lot to Harold and Maude, yes. for a director maybe similar at a similar place in his career. I mean, to me, Rushmore is a more cinematically complete movie. It, it's, it has a little bit more going for it. Granted, it's taking place and being made 20 years after this was being made, mm-hmm. at least. But for me, this isn't a movie that I look to and I think there's an acting performance that's so magnetic. There's a visual style that's so unique. It's it's the it's the overall attitude of the movie which is what gets into you and and it's what stays with you. And it's what stays with you. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, that's that, not a criticism. I'm just saying no, that No, I think it's a really valid observation and I think um you know in terms of performances and direction and script, yes, it's not um a perfect film, but it's certainly... Well, nothing is. No, nothing is. But it's 91 minutes of absolute joy. 
and yes, and it's also I think unlike Rushmore, and I love Rushmore, and yes. as you well know, and there yes. would be no Max Fisher without mm-hmm. uh, Bud Court. But I think that actually Harold and Maud holds up in a way that I'm not entirely sure Rushmore does. I would feel more more comfortable showing well, this is the this mm. is the teenager litmus test. Yes. I would feel more comfortable showing Harold and Maud to my going on 15 year old than I would Rushmore. And in part because I think she'd find Rushmore boring. Mm. And I also think Rushmore, for me, one of the reasons I love it is it reminds me so much of, of Harold and Maud. But when you say you're more comfortable showing it to her because you think this, you think Harold and Maud would is, is, do its, would work its magic immediately more so than Rushmore would? Yeah. I also think it's darker. It's more, um, it pulls a lot of It's definitely punches. darker. It's yeah. much more controversial. I mean, Max Fisher's romance with mm-hmm. what's her name what is her name uh, lovely uh, miss court miss no miss olivia somebody olivia, uh, olivia williams olivia williams what happened to olivia williams she was Whatever. great she was great she was great these so, are or scrubs <laughs> oh are they i mean look rushmore is rushmore it's rushmore's amazing just think about their their relationship and then mm. think about yeah and then <laughs> think about harold and maud and think about you know how it's crazy groundbreaking and remarkable yes. all of that is and how did that ev- i mean i'm how did it even happen how did it even happen how did it happen <laughs> and and why did the sex scene get cut well, well we can talk about that i mean hal ashby wanted to film a sex scene between bud court and ruth gordon now bud court in real life during the making of the film was i believe 23 years old mm. he just happened to have this face that was incredible. So teenage looking. There's a there's a post coital scene where instead of smoking a cigarette, Bud Court is blowing bubbles. Yes, and they are both sort of obviously unclothed under the bedclothes. But you see more of him than of her. She's you see kind more of, of him than of her. And Hal Ashby, to his credit, he wanted to show both youthful skin and aged skin, yep. which I think would have been amazing and provocative. And of course, the studio was not interested in that at all. And when they released a trailer for the film, I believe there was a little snippet of, I'm not sure if it was them making out. It's or, them kissing. Is it the, them yeah, kissing? Because yeah. I don't have the, um, I think on the Criterion DVD, mm. you can see that trailer, which allegedly got the trailer editor fired. Huh, I Because it know aired that. somewhere and the studio freaked yeah, out. that doesn't appear in the film. And they never knew how to market the film. It like flopped, not only because I think it was so hard to market, to be fair to the marketing department, who never gets really a fair shake, and why should they? Mm. But, you know, both Colin Higgins and Hal Ashby and Bud Court, and really everybody hated the original poster, which was just this black and white, sort of looked like a mimeograph with just Harold and Maud in a black and white photo. It told you really nothing. Because it wasn't them on the motorbike yet. No, no. Huh. no. And even the motorbike one with the flowers. flowers and whatnot, that's not really also what the movie is about. It's not a no. hippie flower film right. of, of the type. So they didn't know how to make a poster. Hal Ashby tells a story that I think in Baltimore, there was a theater owner who had his own budget to market the films that he would book in his theater. And he did his own poster. And he led with 80-year-old, 19-year-old romance. And it worked. The thing that that all the filmmakers were saying to the studio, you got to lead with the thing yeah, that this yeah, is. Yeah, because people, I'm sh- assuming people are people, curious about right, that. And even if they're like horrified, that. they're like, I have to go see that. Right. Um, but of course the studio wouldn't do that. So that, that's part of sort of why it felt. And it also came out at a time when I think there were some other other movies in 1971. Because it was nominated for Golden Globe. She was nominated. She and he were nominated for Golden Globes. 
for whatever that means. Yeah. Are you still a Golden Globes watcher? I didn't even. You watch grew it. out of that. I grew out of that. You would have been. I, yeah. A few years ago. Yeah. I think as you age, you give up the Golden Globes. I just it's, it just lasts too long and it's ridiculous. <sighs> and Ricky Gervais was hosting it again, and oh for goodness sake! I mean, I don't expect or didn't expect it to be Oscar winning material. Mm. But what was it up against in seventy one? I should probably know that. You mean what other films yeah, were released yeah, yeah. in nineteen seventy one? Hmm. Well, I'm glad you asked, Bex. Because you can find out, can't you? Clockwork Orange, hmm. Diamonds Are Forever, 007, French Connection, Shaft, Last Picture Show, Dirty oh. Harry. That's okay. That came out around the same time. Willy Wonka. Oh, that's a real, so you've got a real combination of amazing quality cinema and, yeah. you know, drugs. The Omega Man, Clute. Oh, great. Very yeah, influential yeah. movie. Yeah. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Planet of the Apes. There's certainly nothing that's really as sort of bold and original as this movie. Well, there's the French connection. True, but I mean, that's a genre pick yep. executed at the highest level. Yep. This is a weird movie. It's, it's weird it's, it's, that yeah. it got made. It, it Robert Evans, who died a couple months ago, uh, has come up a couple times in the podcast because there's a few movies where they really wouldn't have gotten made if not for Paramount and Robert Evans at the time, who was at least open to material like this. Hal Ashby was actually the, the person who pushed back when the studio approached him to direct this movie. And he said, you know, I think Colin Higgins should direct this. Because mm. Colin Higgins wanted to direct the movie. Right. And he said, you know, I think the guy who wrote it should probably direct it. It's such a piece of specific vision. Like, what, what am I going to bring to it? And the studio, to placate Colin Higgins, did the thing that they do, which is to say, okay, you look, you never directed a feature film before. Like, the budget in this is going to be a million and a half dollars or something. Like, we don't really go around giving that out to first-time directors. But I'll tell you what, we'll give you $75,000 and why don't you film a scene for us? Huh. And that'll be your test. And you never know. If you do a great job, maybe you can direct it. And did he? He did, although he always said that his fateful error was that he thought he would show them how efficient he was. Mm. So instead of doing one scene well, he said, I'm going to do three scenes. And then they're going to say, wow, we gave the guy 75 grand to do one scene, but he did three. We've got to hire him. <laughs> but of course, what happened was he bit off more than he could chew. Right. And they probably were never really seriously going to give him the job anyway. Right. But I mean, my God, to luck into Hal Ashby, even, oh, you know, absolutely. second film Hal Ashby was a pretty great thing. And I think it's as much a Hal Ashby film as it is anything. Do you think that Hal Ashby saw himself in Maud? <laughs> I like to think there's a little bit of, uh, you know, Hal Ashby wasn't a boomer either. No, how right? he was born, I think, in 1929. Right. He, what do they call it in this country? The, the silent generation, the missing generation, Ooh, I don't the know, quiet deep. generation. Really? Well, is that, is that like they, what Tom Brokaw says? <laughs> in England, they call them war babies. Sure. Right? But hmm. what, when What's was Hal term? Ashby born? <clears throat> there is I believe a term. he was born in 29. The lucky few? The lu <laughs> That's a ridiculous name for a generation. It says the often overlooked generation of the lucky few, those born from 29 through 45 after the greatest generation, but before the first baby boomers. Okay. So, yeah, he really, I mean, you know, this is, Maud's journey speaks to his journey too, in a way. But he fully embraced the counterculture, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was smoking pot in the 50s. <laughs> before it was even cool. Before anyone even like knew what it was. I think we got the best generation name, don't you think? Gen Who, our generation? Right. I don't know, Bex, because I was talking to someone the other day about the 90s. What a pathetic era. <laughs> so there really is not a lot. I mean, it's a it's probably the worst era, the worst decade in history, the 90s. Culturally, politically. Yes. It was when I watched Harold and Maude for the first time. Yeah, though. but that's not, Harold and Maude doesn't have anything to do with the 90s. That just <laughs> no, happened to be when you discovered it. Right. But I mean, goatees, grunge, like disaffected, 
you know, dude, distance. it's when we all met. I know, but we were full of shit, I and we know. didn't. You know, I mean, we we weren't that way. No, of course not. We Everybody not, else was. Everyone else was. We were. <laughs> this is one of the things about coming back to this film twenty five years after having seen it so many times. I hadn't mm-hmm. seen it for. Years and years, and I was nervous actually, and I did think you were nervous to watch it because you you. I thought I might hate it. Oh, I God, thought you I were going to hate no, something I, like that, but you, you you might feel cringe. I did, but you know, I didn't cringe at all. There was nothing about it. So I've had this experience with. I mean, I think now that I've got older mm-hmm. kids, and I'm really you watch you rewatch. I movies rewatch that meant films, something to you. That meant, and it's the worst thing to do ever. I hope you're not doing this. It really is. Well, which it ones really, have you watched that don't hold up? All of them. Everything. All of them? I've, no, well, doesn't hold up. Maybe it holds up for me, but that my teen sneers at. So Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Wow. Actually, Back to the Future. Cynical teens. Oh, I know. Back to the Future. <laughs> Back to the Future. She loves. Okay. So I'll give what her does that. she like about that? What is it about that well, as I opposed think that, to Ghostbusters? I think it appeals to the sort of uh, Stranger Things loving 1985 obsessed oh, okay. thing, retro thing that's happening right now. All right, but that's a good enough reason to get right. into it. Ghostbusters was was purely about the fact that there are no women. In it, sure, doing fair anything enough. other than wearing a floaty nighty and turning fair into enough. a monster. That's fair it. enough criticism, right? Right, but that kind of is the same for all the films. Yeah, but that's from the eighties, which we know, right? But how about context? Can't you put that in context? Doesn't sure, mean, but doesn't mean you have to cancel point, the whole era of films. No, do you, but you do, I do have many moments where I'm, you know, ten minutes into Footloose, and then I think, well, this is not <laughs> such a good idea. In Ecclesiastes assures us. That there is a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to laugh. And a time to weep. A time to mourn. And there is a time to dance. Maybe we won't watch this. Um, so, you know, but, but I feel like this, so I was worried that this Mm. would be a sort of Rocky Horror Picture Show moment for me, you know, watching something that I watched so many times and I loved. And of course it's not, it's so much more beautiful and meaningful and, and radical and taboo breaking in ways that Rocky Horror Picture Show sadly is not. Um, and I think, you know, I was watching it at the same time as I discovered Cabaret. So I really had this. Cabaret like, the movie or, cabaret the, or the just movie. The devoting your time to perform in cabarets? Well, both both things, but Cabaret the movie. And so I had this, you know, Maud and Sally wow. Bowles obsession. Paulina, Sally Bowles! What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Put down the knitting, the book and the broom. It's time for a holiday. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Right? That there this, was really, gonna... this is really making a lot of sense <laughs> if you knew Bex. I was going to age into, you know, some So you really want to age into sort of a, a, a bizarre geriatric eccentric. <laughs> I think so. That's your hope. Although maybe less Sally Bowles now, now that I'm older well, and wiser. We have the knitwear. I do. I have so much knitwear, it's true. 
Um, but you're a little too fashionable to sort of get there. I think you'd like to think that oh, you're going to end Maud up there. Oh, I think Maud is very fashionable. She is very fashionable. She's very fashionable. Yeah. I think it's pretty radical that a 80, nearing 80-year-old 80 woman could be seen in this light, could be the love interest, could be kind of represent the summer of love, could mm. be, you know, um, just the, could embody it in yes. some ways, could be the focus of this film. Has it ever happened since? Is there another film that gives... Well, there was the recent, uh, was it a Michael Haneke film or a Mike Lee film where the aged couple was facing mutual death? You know, that that old happy-go-lucky. Uh, <laughs> remember the one? It was like his Is wife was Mike dying. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I can't remember. Which one? <laughs> it came out like a couple years ago and it was okay. like, it was about like late stage marriage and There was a French death. film. No. L'Amour? No. 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 Oh, maybe it was L'Amour. Yeah. What that was, was that really amazing. I didn't but that see was that. both of them. That wasn't just they both her. died. They were both old. Jesus. They both were old and they died. Look, I want to go to the cinema to be reminded <laughs> of youth, Bex. I don't want to I don't want well, to look at got, the perma seal on my future. You've got bad court for that. You've got you've got Harold with his incredible Can we talk about his face? Please. Okay. If can you we wanna, talk about his face? If you I'm if you want to talk about Bud Court, we can talk about Bud Court. I have a few points to make. I have a contention which again, this, this is just simply looking at acting style, acting ability at a, at, a, at, at a relatively young age for an actor. I actually think one of the weak links in this movie is Bud Court. Huh. I think that he does not have the acting skills to stand opposite a Ruth Gordon and actually deliver a believable connection or relationship. And for me, it's one of the big kind of hangups that I have with the movie. Mm. And I get that his look is iconic and absolutely perfect. And Colin Higgins didn't want Bud Court. He wanted someone else. I don't know. I'm so wondering. So who do you see? Who like Jason Schwartzman? Is that what you're? No, no. no. <laughs> well, at, of the, of the at the time. At the time, who? I guess we'll just go into our alternative casting segment. Put that one back. Okay. Well, here's some people that were considered at the time. Ah. John Rubenstein was who Colin Higgins had written the part for. Oh, interesting. Richard Dreyfus. Really? How old, wait, how old was he at the time? 26, 25. Oh, but he's all wrong. He's all, he's, no, he's, he's okay. just all manic and, you A little know. manic, yes. Yeah. Bob Balaban. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Bob Balaban was 80 years old when he was 10 years old, so I, I don't know. I think that's wrong, although I would love to see that. I would love he would, to. I, and then now it makes sense that, you I know. Think, I'm going to Google Bob Balaban 1971. We need to see a picture of him Because I'm going to say, I mean, it's a different was thing. Was he always bald? I, I think so. I think he always was. He was certainly a little Dreyfus-esque, I would yeah, say, in Dreyfus -esque. look. So I don't think he has that kind no. of Adams family-esque right. pallor, And also se. just, you know, yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, look, you're you're the type of fan that you it's, can't see can't, anyone else in the role. So it's gonna, no, but I think your point is well made. I'm how accepting about it. John I'm, Savage. Yeah. Okay. Now that's interesting. I'll consider that. I think the most interesting thing that Bud Court does is break the fourth wall, and that's about it, really. Oh, and so you actually I'm, I'm, I'm you coming actually, around. Well, no, 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 I don't want you to come around. No, I, but I'm. But I'm, I mean, I'm considering this now. So and I think this, the. There's two two op two two occurrences of breaking the wall yeah. that occur. Yeah. Do you remember what they are? You can tell me. I'm not sure I can remember exactly where they fall in the film. Okay. Well, the first one is when the first computer dating oh, yeah. uh, girl <laughs> yes. flees 
And Bud Court looks to the camera and gives a really sly look, which is held for an almost uncomfortable beat. Yeah. Uh, that was not scripted. That was ad-libbed on set, and Hal Ashby kept it in. And then there's another scene later on where he gives the finger to his mother as she retreats. Yes. And that also was ad-libbed but and left But even in. before he breaks the fourth wall, he smiles inanely. It- Crazily. Well, that's the one I was talking about. Is when that the they, same when, moment? That's the same moment in the first one where, oh. where they where they chase where after he chases off the first oh, computer right, okay. date. I feel I feel Not like whenever date. he is it computer date well, in seventy one. No, what were they phone? Uh, book, I think it's called book? computer dating, isn't it? I thought it was like they had computer. No, but isn't that how she's bringing the? Oh, maybe that's her questionnaire that she's doing. Yeah, she's doing a questionnaire. We need to talk about Vivian Pickles. Come on. Well, hold on. Let's okay, finish sorry. with Bud Court. I know oh, you're right. eager to get off this subject because you're taking <laughs> it Because I think as, that you've, I think, yeah, you've, you've made your point. You're like, oh, he's trying it. Look, there are Bud Court performances that I love, notably in Heat. Mm. He plays the corrupt owner of the diner. He accepts an ex-con into his kitchen, and the ex-con is, like, really grateful for this simple job to try and make a very incremental start on a, on a straight and narrow life. And when Bud Court gives him the 411 on how it's going to go down— Selenko? I'm down breathing. Grierson, my parole officer, told me to come by here and said you had a job for me. So you're familiar with this kind of operation, huh? Yeah, man. I'm a great grill man. Good. Good for you. Here, you'll mop out the toilets, hit the dishwasher, bus tables, and empty the garbage, too. Give me a hard time. I'll report you loaded, drunk, or stealing, and I will violate you back so fast you have a spin. 25% of your take-home kicks back to me. Rules of the game. Paul Grierson, check it out. Change in the back. Well, what are you waiting for? Uh, have you seen Heat? Michael Mann's yes, Heat? Yes, yes. Crime epic? Not for a while. Right. It came out Why a while ago. Talk about absence of... Right. Well, there's a couple of interesting female characters. Diane Venora, mm. Ashley Judd. Mm. Uh, Not as interesting as Ruth Gordon. No, no. He has the look. I don't think at this time he had the chops. But Mischievous does he have to, does character. He, I don't know if he has to do that much. Does he have to do that much? I well, think that his... his Performance is moving and beautiful, and he doesn't have to do very much. Well, I think that he doesn't do very much, and you've probably (laughs) talked yourself into believing that's a virtue. Mm. All I'm saying is, I think if you step out of the movie, you could imagine an actor doing more. Mm -hmm. And I think that if the actor could do more, I think there would be more dialogue between them in a way that might be more meaningful. One of the things that he does do well, and we'll, we'll play this clip, Really, the scene that was the audition scene for for actors being considered for the role of Harold. First time was when I was at boarding school in the chemistry lab. I was in there cleaning it up. So uh, I decided I'd do a little experimenting, you know. So I threw all this stuff out and began mixing it up. It was very scientific. <laughs> Uh, there was this massive explosion. It knocked me down, blew out a huge hole in the floor. There was uh, boards and bricks and flames leaping up. I figured, you know, time to leave. My career in school was over. So uh, I went home. My mother was giving a party, so I just went right up the back stairs into my room. Turned out the light. And uh, I got this funny feeling. The doorbell rang. I went out to the banister. 
and uh, these two policemen came in, found my mother, and uh, told her that I was killed in the fire. She put one hand up to her forehead, the other she reached out as if groping for support, and with this long sigh, she collapsed in their arms. Decided I, then that I enjoyed being dead. I understand a lot of people enjoy being dead, but they're not dead really. They're just backing away from life. Look, that's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's a Come great on. scene. Yeah, he's he's very good in it. Mm-hmm. However. Uh, that's, you know, that's to, right towards the end of the film, isn't it? It is. And that's part of the problem uh-huh. that I have is that if he's capable of much of that, yeah. and I think that the structure of the movie where he's so shut down for really well, at least half of the movie, then I think that's kind of the, that's that's one of the problems that I have with his performance in there. And that's not necessarily his fault because when you look at that, I would like to see a little more of that in the beginning part of the movie. You don't have to be a yeah. mute in order to render, you know, a disaffected youth. Well, maybe a little bit more of that and a little bit less of the faked suicides and the dating, right? The dating is probably the most extraneous part of the movie, I would right. say. Like, you don't need we could cut, three we or could, four. Exactly. Uh, there was a lot of cutting. I mean, they cut all of Cyril Cusack's bizarro sculptor character stuff. And I would have liked one. more of that, too. That would have maybe been more. <laughs> Apparently, Hal Ashby cut the hell out of Ruth Gordon. Really? Uh, That's such a... And can we... Is there anywhere we can see it? No. I don't know. Again... Criterion? I don't know. You're the Harold and Maude expert. Presumably, you own the Criterion edition. I do. I need to return to it. I bet... I don't know if there's a different cut of the movie there. Hmm. However, okay. At the end... Yeah. With the head down... Yeah. The reason he's doing that is he can't convincingly cry on screen. And And you know that because... That's an act... That's acting 101. I mean, let's say you're a director... And you're on set, and mm-hmm. you have Bud Court, and you have this incredible piece of dialogue. Right. Do you want your actor to be on camera as he visibly wells up and begins crying? Or do you want him to be unseeable because his head is in his hands? And it's, not a, it's a choice that's made because the actor at the time, and again, he's 22 years old. I'm not saying that right. he should be the end and be all, but I'm saying that I think his limitations are visible. Are yeah. visible. No, I'll give you that. I also think he's reminding me a huge, huge amount of Andrew McCarthy. Oh, I should say a little bit uh, Broderickian too. Huh. I was really. How about a Matthew Broderick? Yeah. Andrew McCarthy would be just a, Andrew McCarthy would be a really interesting Harold. I think so that too. Kind of deer in the headlights. They're kind not going to remake it though, are they? Because there's been. Oh, of course they will, Bex. They ruin oh, everything that way. There's been stage productions. I was Googling them in, yes. in London. They had one in Paris that ran for a number of years. That's an incredible scene. Yeah. Ruth Gordon's listening in that scene is amazing. It just shows you sometimes that incredible acting is listening. Yeah. The way she, li- her empathy for him. Right. Carries it. And without her, it, it really wouldn't work. Well, um, without her, the whole film wouldn't work. This no. is, you know. So it's ironic that, um, she only came into it as like kind of a last choice. Hal Ashby 
kind of wanted to go with like, I think he wanted Vivian Pickles to do it. Oh, he wanted really? an English actress to okay. do it. And I think... I didn't realize that that was who he wanted. And Vivian Pickles is so perfect. And she <laughs> wore perfect. all her own clothes for the part. Oh, did she? I didn't yes. know that. That's they didn't great. have to rent her a wardrobe probably didn't at have all. A budget. No, I know. Here, I'm going to tell you a little bit about who was considered for Maud. Okay, Ashby felt Maud should ideally be European. And his list of possible actresses included Peggy Ashcroft, Edith Evans, Gladys Cooper, and Celia Johnson. I don't know who any of those people are. Oh, Peggy Ashcroft would have been great. Who's Peggy Ashcroft? She's a British actress. Yeah, so. I know that, but I mean, give me a. I don't know. I guess her career spanned more than 60 years. Yeah. Lade Lenya. No idea. Luis Rainier. Pola Negri. Mm-mm. Minta Durfee. Minta Durfee is a great name. <laughs> I'm sad that Minta Durfee. Don't you think that you would change your name if your name was Minta Durfee? No. no. It's like there's certain names that are it. so weird that you have to keep. Yeah. Minta is one of them. M I N T A. M I N T A. Minta. Oh, Minta. Hungarian, perhaps. Agatha Christie. Wait, what? Agatha Christie in... Actress? What? I don't understand. She was going to be Maud. Ruth Gordon indicated that in addition, she heard that Edwidge Fulier, Elizabeth <laughs> Bergnier, Mildred Natwick, Mildred Dunnock, and Dorothy Stickney <laughs> had been considered. But she beat them all to it. Oh, wait. Just to refinish our Herald yeah. after John Savage, there is one that we didn't mention and who is indirectly the reason why we have the iconic mm. Cat Stevens soundtrack. Ah, oh, which we need to get to. Elton John was considered for Herald. Wait, wait. Really? Yes. Because I know that he was the first choice for the music. Well, Ashby had seen Elton John live and hoped that he would also do the music, but they actually had a quite a sophisticated level of conversation before Elton sort of realized that he couldn't do it or didn't want to do it or didn't have the time to do it. Right. It, that's a bizarre, that's a, that's like. Can you there imagine? Are, there are some ideas that you're sort of glad through the haze of pot smoke didn't come to fruition. I think Elton John as Harold is probably one of them. Is he capable of living an interior life? No, that's just <laughs> the strangest thing. I'm just thinking the pinball wizard is Harold and that just doesn't, yeah. it's not, it's not happening. I mean, even just thinking about Elton John, his music. In this yeah, film. Yeah, it would be bizarre. I, I could see the music working. Which songs? Swapping Out Trouble for Hold Candle. Hold Me Closer, Tiny Old Dancer. <laughs> Candle in the Wind. Your song. Your song. Uh-huh. In place of what? Your song instead of... Trouble? Yeah. I want to play a Vivian Pickles clip yes, because too. I love, love, love. Vivian is a great name. Pickles, Vivian Pickles. This is like, this is like. (laughs) That's what Minta should have changed her name to. Yeah, you can't get better than this. Mm. So the the scene you were referring to before is uh, the dating questionnaire scene. Yeah. Which which is one of my favorite scenes because I love transitions in scenes where something is happening at first and then something else starts happening. And what starts happening is she at first is answering the questions for Harold, but then just. Just for herself. Switches over to what (laughs) she thinks. Right. Do you often get the hat. feeling that perhaps Actually, life isn't worth that's living? That's amazing. Mm-hmm. The what clothes are fantastic. A, B? Oh, we'll put down C. Not sure. Mm-hmm. Is the subject of sex being overexploited by our mass media? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> do you sometimes have headaches or backaches after a difficult day? Yes, I do indeed. Yeah. Do you think the sexual revolution Child's has loading gone a gun while this is going on? Certainly has. Do you find the idea of wife swapping distasteful? I even find the question distasteful. Do you enjoy 
Good. She's so good. Vivian Pickles. God, I love her. Vivian, still alive, 88 years old, last worked as an actor in 1999 on an episode of, how do you say this? Mid Midsummer? Midsummer? Well, if it was that Midsummer weird. Midsummer Murders? Midsummer, yeah. Why is it spelled that way? Well, because it's pretentious. Is that how they spell Midsummer? What does that mean? Well, that is that a film, town? Is it a location? Is it a thing? It's his name, isn't it? Oh, it is? I don't know. I don't know either. I'm making it up. Might be a detective. You're supposed thing. to know this. Is your why? This is your this isn't Don't you watch stuff. British detective series? No. Sorry to disappoint you. I don't. John Nettles is DCI Tom Barnaby. Oh. There's no Midsummer. <laughs> Midsummer. I don't, I know don't what think it is. it's pronounced like that. That's just that weird Danish <laughs> film from last year. <laughs> Midsummer. 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 Vivian Pickles. What's great about Vivian Pickles in the movie is, um, you know, I don't know if you share this opinion. She's not all bad. Mm-mm. Mm. I was just having a glass of water there. <laughs> uh, no, she's not all bad. In fact, she's, you know. She's kind of tolerant of. Absolutely. Of, of the, I mean, she's not like. That first, of- that, f- sorry, that first scene when she, um, no, it's the second suicide attempt after the dinner party. Yes. When she walks in and he is in the bathtub and there's blood splattered. Yes. It's really, really yes, grotesque gruesome. and gruesome and awful. And I haven't shown it to my teenager because that yes. seems a bit extreme. And she takes that. I mean, she does say it's too much. It's gone too far. But she takes that in her stride. I mean, it's amazing. Yes. I kept thinking, you know, Harold, go out and volunteer. Do something for someone else. <laughs> right. You know, it's 1971. There's a lot of work to do. A little bit of the self-involvement is, I don't know, it's kind of like what you're saying about sort of lack of female roles in maybe some movies from the 80s. Yeah. When you look at something like this, I get it, we're in 1971, we're all disaffected at the time. Right. The world is disaffected. There's all sorts of horrible things going on. But it's kind of like, okay, I mean, instead of swanning about in misery, why don't you go volunteer somewhere, man? Go feed somebody. Right. Don't just, you know, take a blowtorch to your new sports car. Which is beautiful. Jaguar. I mean, my God. Well, I mean, at I least actually, sell it. I liked the conversion well, that he did. It. That would have been your, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I would have, so would you, you <laughs> champagne socialist. Let's be real. No, did I you would bring about, your collection of tote bags like you promised? I didn't. I brought one tote bag. And I'd realize now I forgot my Harold and Maud buttons. Oh my God, that is unacceptable. I have a vintage collection of Harold and Moore. Do you really? I really do. Vintage from 71 or over the years? I've I've got them over the years. I've got one in Paris. I've got a variety of them. I'm going to have to send you one. Okay. All right. Shall we talk about the music? Let's please talk about Cat Stevens. Because? We can't talk about Harold and Maud without talking about Cat or Yusuf. You you really cannot, which is an interesting thing. Uh, Maybe more so than any other movie I could think of. I was trying to think of other films where the soundtrack is this important and crucial to the film. And in a completely different way than Scorsese films and Tarantino films and any of that. Yeah, well, one, you'd have to first start with films where one musician's music is prominently featured throughout, again, citing back to The Graduate graduate. in 1967. You have Simon and Garfunkel. And a very similar thing where there were songs that Mike Nichols at the time was using just as placeholders Mm -hmm. in the assembly of the film in the edit room. And the idea was that Simon and Garfunkel were going to write new material for the movie. But But then, of course, you become attached to Scarborough Fair and nothing that they – I mean. It's Scarborough Fair. What, are you going to write some other song that you're going to go, oh, yeah, I like that better than Scarborough Fair. Let's use that that instead. instead. Similarly, Cat Stevens, when he was finally induced to let his music be used, which he was not 
initially enthusiastic about. I actually have a clip of him talking about the use of oh, his really? music. I was a little bit cautious. I said, but hang on, this is a comedy and my music is quite serious, you know. I take it quite seriously. So um, the juxtaposing of songs, you know, in film, uh, it's kind of dangerous business because as a writer, you know, you've got your own vision <laughs> and along comes a director who kind of sees it in this other way. And um, I wasn't certain if we were going to do this or we were going to say yes. So he really wanted to convince me, Hal wanted to convince me that this was the right thing. So he invited me to San Francisco where they were filming it and, and watching the rushes. And then, you know, we were sitting in there as he was puffing on his little whatever it was. And um, saying, look at this. And then, you know, and there was, I think it was Miles from Nowhere and The Hearst, you know, and I went, oh, that's good. But I won't need it. When I reach the end There's that great moment where it doesn't describe what's going on. And it shouldn't in some way. But there's a spirit, there's a meaning, there's something so subtle about the core of that song, which, which hits that string and that scene. It tells you everything about it. That, to me, is the greatest summation of why this music works so well in this film. It's not literal. Like, what's going on in the song's mm. lyrics is not literally what's going on on screen. Yeah. The, this, there's an aspect of the spirit of Harold and Maude which is uplifted and contained in this Cat Stevens thing, which is such its own thing at its time and now today. Right, and they're inseparable from each other. It's like the, the film and Cat Stevens' music. They, they coexist in a way that I can't think of many other examples. Do you have any, Jace? Of films where the music, I mean, did he, he wrote two songs specifically for this? Is that right? And yes. The, and then, and the rest of them? The rest of them were supposed to be placeholders. Right. And in a similar, similar thing that happened with The Graduate, the Graduate. you know, he, I, I think actually Cat was supposed to sort of do some score as well. Mm. And I don't think he got to that and just ended up using most of those. So he wrote, Don't Be Shy and If You Want to Sing Out, Sing Out. It's pretty, Amazing. You know, yeah. I'll just I'll just knock that out. You need a new <laughs> song. Let me just write. If you want to sing out, sing out. Play a little clip of when that's used here in the movie. So Ruth Gordon starts playing it on the piano. There's a little magical realism throughout the film in a few spots. This is one of them. She gets up to do a little dance, but the piano keeps playing. One of the things that's interesting about Hal Ashby, I think the movie really comes alive when they do the montages over the songs, because yeah. I think as an editor at heart, Hal Ashby is really good at using images in conjunction with the music to tease out something really evocative and emotional, most particularly at the end of the film. With Trouble. Uh, with Trouble in the hospital yeah. scenes. One of the one of the great montages. Like, And he cries without covering his face. Does he? You know what? Maybe you're uh -huh. right. Trouble. 
Don't cry, Bex. <laughs> I'm trying not to. Trouble, oh, trouble, can't you see? You're eating my heart away and there's nothing much left of me. What a masterful, what amazing, brilliant, amazing brilliant montage. montage. I know. It's more powerful than if there were words spoken. Yeah. Not to take away from the music. Bex has a very yeah. nervous look on his But I would say that... You're I imagining think, Elton John here instead, No, I think that you? a lot yeah. of the emotion of the film comes from the songs. Yes. Not necessarily the action, action of the film. I agree. Now, that's different than perhaps in other movies where we are moved because of two actors having a moment on screen. Again, don't. No, I, I, too, I, 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 I. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I know what you're saying. I just um, don't think that that is necessarily a bad thing, a negative thing. I think that that you know it's part of this, um, you know, the the Cat Stevens music and the film mm -hmm. co coexist so beautifully together. It's impossible to. A cynic might say, and I'm not this. I'm not this cynic. No, you're not but I've heard either. other directors uh, on commentary tracks in the podcast say that you know music is tricky as a director because you can induce an emotional reaction from the audience mm. simply through the use of a song. You can make people feel something through playing trouble on the soundtrack, regardless of what's going on underneath it. All I'm saying is a lot of the emotion, a lot of the moving emotion from Harold and Maud comes from the Cat Stevens songs, which listened to out of the context of Harold and Maude are still as emotional and moving. Yes. It's a bit of a cheat. Although with that montage. Although the montage is a really good use of the filmmaker's skills. Right. As opposed to. And the performances. Yes. Say, for example, yes. John Cusack in Say Anything. <laughs> <laughs> Just a segue there. Just a segue there. Just a segue neatly there. Yeah. Right. That's another amazing use of a pop song. Fantastic use of You're talking about Peter you should Gabriel. say anything? Yeah. Yeah. Peter Gabriel. Yes. In your eyes. Yes. Except nothing else is happening in that very moving well, he's moment. Holding the boombox. He's up holding in the, the boombox. Have you tried to do that the in the eighties? Those are heavy backs. <laughs> Twenty D energizers. Twenty C energizers? D, not C D. Let's give a little pre I mean he is doing something. He's holding something. the boomboxes early in the morning, the curtains are blowing. But yeah, but similarly, that's yeah. The moment is created through the emotion of the song not to the same degree as this. If we're going to make a top, no, five. not at all. Well, I mean, someone's died here, right? So you know, well, and it's, it's a, little a beautiful bit more montage, it's and he's driving montage. in the rain. All sorts of things are happening. Driving in the rain. He's driving in the I rain. I think driving in the rain might be <laughs> as much of a cheat as playing sad music on the soundtrack, but it's okay. But it's different than. It works incredibly well, but on many levels, it's really it different than the use of Tiny Dancer in Almost Famous, where that's just kind of thrown in. <laughs> Right? Just um, sort of thrown in to make you feel good and kind of... You mean when they're going down in the plane crash? No, it's when they're on the bus and it's, you know, they're all... Oh, it's sort of like they're bus. all like... Yeah, they're know, all feeling yeah. like the band. We're in the band. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, I know what you mean. So great, but great examples of a pop song in, in a film and in a montage sequence. I can't think of anything really better than this. Maybe Simon and Garfunkel and The Graduate. 
Maybe uh, it's different though. Simon and Garfunkel always ha- does not have the emotional content for me that Cat yeah. Stevens does. Like Cat Stevens is so yeah. nakedly emotional in a brilliant and moving way. Simon and Garfunkel, it's it's a little cold. Yeah, I agree. To me. Oh, I've got a good one. Um, Perfect Day, Lou Reed in Train Spotting. That's pretty good. Uh huh. That's pretty good. Right. Yeah. We have to play this one because one of the most incredible shots in the movie. Which one? This is often referred to as the flower scene. Oh, yes. I should have bought you some sunflowers today. Oh, that would have been perfect to brighten up the room. No. That's okay. Your presence is brightness enough, Bex. What flower would you like to be? I don't know. One of these, maybe? Why do you say that? Because they're all alike. Oh, but they're not. Look, see. Some are smaller, some are fatter. Some grow to the left, some to the right. Some even have lost some petals, all kinds of observable differences. You see, Harold, I feel that much of the world's sorrow comes from people who are this, yet allow themselves to be treated as that. Well, I think it's fine Building jumbo planes This shot is insane. Taking a ride on a cosmic train. Switch There's an epic pullout of them sitting amongst a little pocket of open flowers. flowers, and then they're in a graveyard. And as you pull out, the graveyard just takes on an epic proportion, and all the gravestones are the same. And, and they're the, all white, like the And they're all white. Yeah. And the song is Where Do the Children Play? It's hard not to look at that as a direct commentary on the Vietnam War that was going on at the time. That's such a beautiful, beautiful sequence. That's a great moment. That's a great scene between the two of them. Man, Ruth Gordon is just so fucking good. She's amazing. I love her skipping out of the cemetery when they see each other at the first funeral and she's got her yellow umbrella. She just brings joy and I don't know what it is. She's such a, there's no one like her. And I think that's part of her thing is when you have her, you're getting Ruth Gordon. You know, it's not like Ruth Gordon ever did, you know, no, it's a society grand dam and right, pulled it off. I right. mean, she probably could. No, it really is her film, and it's more. It's about Maud. It's about Maud. Look, I had a cat named Maud. I, really? I never had a Harold. Did you know that Judd Apatow named his daughter? I Maud did. I knew as that. a result yeah, of this movie. No, but I named my cat first. Now, here's another critical take mm-hmm. that I would like to get your take on. Okay. Uh, do you think that in the end, the death of Maud betrays the life-affirming message? that the film has put forth to that point? No. No? No. I think if Harold, spoiler alert, for those of for you- For 1971's <laughs> Harold and Maude, if you haven't seen it. If you it, haven't seen it. She dies. She but dies. she doesn't just die, which would be one choice. Right. To die of uh, suddenness would be one thing, but- She chooses- She takes her own life. Yes, she takes- You don't find so that don't... at odds with her message of- Carpe diem. She doesn't want to live, you know, she doesn't want to live beyond 80. It's her 80th birthday. She's okay. had this wonderful- incredible life and you know this meaningful life full of resistance and experience and she has this beautiful 80th birthday celebration with Harold mm-hmm. and then she tells and then him destroys his world by telling him that she taken, has taken what does she take pills she says pills. I took the pills an hour ago I'm right. just saying it's a selfish choice yes and this is what makes her the kind of ultimate boomer I haven't heard that assessment of her character. (laughs) Even though she's not. But look, if he'd driven his car off the cliff, 
which it, when I'm sitting, you know. You think that's what's happened. Right. I'm yes. sitting in the dark in Leeds yes. in 1995 and I think, oh my God, he's driving off the cliff. If they both died, if what would your, I, I would have, you would have been I would have a just, puddle. Uh, exactly. And that would have been good, right? It wouldn't have been good. Yeah. And that was actually an ending that they contemplated. No. And I'm so glad that's not the ending. Yeah. And so then when it pulls back to reveal that he's standing on the hillside playing the banjo. Yes. And sort of skipping off. Skipping off happily. Or as much skipping as Bud as Court can do. can do. But yeah, I don't know. That's, I, the, that's the life-affirming message at the end of it, right? That's, it is. Yeah. But I just find it, I do find it a little, a little jarring. I get it like theatrically. I get it sort of twist-wise. Mm-hmm. I get that having a twist is a thing to do. But for a life-affirming movie where these two oddballs have found each other. But it's a film about death. Or is it? it a film about life? Is it? I mean, ultimately, it's a film film about both. Well, ultimately, it's a film about life because he remains. Yes, he remains. She dies. I'm just. And he and he and she helps him to get beyond his fascination with death by dying. By dying. By showing him perhaps the cost of death, the reality of death, in a manner that's. Yeah, but also that you can have lived this remarkably rich life, Mm. and that death doesn't have to be. It's not the end of her, not the end of Maud. I mean, it is the end of Maud. She's dying. She's dead. For poor Harold, though, here he is. He's had a closed heart, a closed mind. He's finally open. He finally trusts and gives gives himself over to love. And guess what? You know what? I'm never fucking doing that again because the last time I made myself vulnerable, look what the hell happened. She went and fucking killed herself. (laughs) But we can imagine what would happen in Harold and Maud too. Maybe... He would go home and be nice to his mum. This is why I think I, if you if you look at his performance in Heat as the cameo, he's this embittered uh-huh. asshole. I've always thought that that is Michael Mann's version of Harold since huh. he was destroyed by the death of Maud. He sort of went on to become this embittered old man. I like that idea. <laughs> that, that's Yeah, that's the sequel. That's, well, you know, they did want to make – Colin Higgins did no. want to do two sequels to Harold and Maud. Two? Yes. One wasn't enough. Colin Higgins was a really fascinating and wildly talented guy who died much, much too young of AIDS at the age of 47 in 1988. He expressed interest in 1978 about a sequel and a prequel. The sequel, Harold's Story, would have Court portray Harold's life after Maud. Higgins imagined a prequel showing Maud's life before Harold called Grover and Maud. It had Maud learning how to steal cars from Grover Muldoon, the character portrayed by Richard Pryor in Higgins' <laughs> 1976 film, Silver Streak. All right, ace of deuce. That's bad, man. You're looking good. Now, here, take this radio. When you step out of here, you got to step out of here like king shit, right? You bad. I put that radio to your ear. That's going to help cover your face, right? And just move with the rhythm of the music. Move your body with the rhythm of the music. That's all you got to remember, okay? Let me see you try it. Step to the music. Step to the music. Yeah. Step to the music. Stop. How come you white has got such a tight ass, man? Richard Pryor and Ruth Gordon together on screen would have been the shit. It would have. But that again, that's such a strange choice of all the things that we want to know more about Maud's life. You don't that, want to know about how she No, I want to know about how she, all her all her resistance and all her, you know, right. you know, battling the man and all the what what is it? What's her quote? I wrote it down somewhere. Fighting for liberty, rights and justice. I want to know all about that. You know what's one of the most heartbreakingly beautiful lines in the whole movie? There's a line she says how the world still dearly loves a cage. God, that's a fucking amazing line. Yeah, it is. That's Colin Higgins. I mean, he was so, so fascinating and would have had an incredible career as a writer and probably as a director mm. because of his versatility. 
I mean, Silver Streak, Nine to Five, Harold and Maud. Yeah, it's amazing. All written by the same person. Yeah. That's really bizarre and amazing. So all of these components, Hal Ashby and you know, and mm-hmm. the two performers and the amazing script, this all makes you feel like it doesn't have to necessarily hold together as this perfect film. Oh, that I'm no, there, there is no, 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 no. But in a way, film. it's like, of course not. But there, it's more of a. You can laugh. It's a thing. It's a. It's a thing. It's, it's a, a thing. But it's, it's like also a, f- a philosophical statement. It is, but it's like Greece. It's like it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it doesn't matter whether Greece is good or bad. It's the word. Or well acted or right. well constructed. It doesn't even matter. It's a iconic for a hundred, two hundred years from now. Yeah. People will still be watching Greece and singing those songs. Right. A hundred, two hundred years from now, Harold and Maud is still going to have a cultural cachet. It's still going to mean something. It's a original statement that yeah. stands the test of time. But that doesn't mean we can't. Of poke course, a few slow-drawing holes in the balloon absolutely. just to say, I am, I am, here are some places where it might have been better. I'm That's in all. agreement, certainly, about Bud Court. The publicity department had some interesting promotional ideas for the release. They considered sending motorcycles with sidecars, with an old lady in the sidecar, driven by a young man, <laughs> <What>? uh, <laughs> to, to create publicity. And the motorcycles would carry a just-married sign and play information about the... The, the show. Huh. The idea was dropped. <laughs> Additionally, it was contemplated that we could have Ruth Gordon plant a tree in a central location Aww. for an ecology tie-in. That's the kind of idea you would come up with in a marketing. Except, no, she wouldn't. She would be liberating she'd trees. She'd be liberating the tree. Well, maybe she's, maybe, she's maybe she's planting the tree she liberated. I love that scene. So many scenes to get to. So many Her scenes. Her great scene with, with Tom Skerritt. License, lady? I don't have one. I don't believe in them. How long have you been driving, lady? About uh, 45 minutes, wouldn't you say, Harold? We were hoping to start sooner, but you see, it's rather hard to find a truck. Is your truck? Uh, oh, no, I just took it. Okay. Uh, yes, please. I have to pull up my truck. Well, it's not mine, really, but... We would like to get it into soil as soon as possible. Yeah, let me get this straight, lady. All right, then, and we'll be off. Nice chatting. It was very nice. But let's move on quickly to the Columbo Cinematic Universe. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. Oh, yeah, because she was, which episode was she in? She is in what I consider to be perhaps the greatest of all Columbo episodes, Try and Catch Me, in which she plays a mystery author. Probably one of about four or five Columbo episodes that always featured a mystery author who in real life was committing murders. Right. Of course, it's Ruth Gordon, so she delivers this incredible performance. Peter Falk, as Columbo, can't help throughout the episode to kind of fall in love with her and and hope dearly that she didn't do it, even though he knows that she did. Do you have a clip? You have a clip? I have a clip. I have a brief clip. Okay. Excuse me, ma'am. You're Abigail Mitchell, the best in murder. I just want to say, ma'am, that it's a very great honor to meet a famous author. Um, I just wish we were meeting under happier circumstances. Thank you, young man. You're very kind. Uh, my name is Lieutenant Colombo, ma'am, homicide. Mr. Galvin, the deceased, I understand he was your nephew. No blood relation. He was married to my niece. Yes. Your secretary told us how your niece died in a uh, 
boating accident four months ago. They loved each other so. It's inconceivable that another accident could take Edmund's life. Excuse me, ma'am. What accident was that? I say, his death. Oh, I doubt that was an accident, ma'am. I doubt that very much. What year was that? It's 1978. Okay. So that's her presence in the Columbo Cinematic Universe. Now, quickly, we have a segment called Latchkey TV. <laughs> Hello? Which you have provided some clips Ample for. material. Ample right? material. This is our first, you're our first ever Brit on the pod. So it's fascinating to me to watch these clips that you sent because... I don't know what the hell was going on in England, man, but you guys watched some weird shit. This is Grange Hill. Oh, and this is so important for all the Brits out there. Is it? Oh, yes. So when they hear this. Oh, they're just this music. Yeah. Okay. Five o'clock every day after school. Really? This music. And that comic strip. Yeah, with the sausage going What's into the sausage? The, this, this bit. It's all the different parts of school, right? So the sausage comes into the front. There you go. Oh, okay. Because, <laughs> of course, room. we eat bangers and mash bangers at and school. Mash. Some racial diversity, yeah, impressive for its yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing show. Okay, That's... so this is a live action. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's a middle school? It's a mid, well, it's a secondary school, so that's oh, okay. we don't have we don't have middle schools. We have secondary, 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 secondary school. We Firstly, have, school, yes, secondary school, primary, Thirdly. primary, 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 and secondary. Secondary, <laughs> secondary is middle and high. Okay, so these are the adventures of a group of yeah, secondary of, of, school of, students. You know, of, of, they're not Londoners; they're from just outside London, but they're you know it's the late seventies. Do we have early class 80s. issues going on? Oh, all kinds of class issues. Okay. Yeah, it's really exciting. They've all got great nicknames: Bonzo and Biffa and things like that. <laughs> Tucker. And everyone in your generation would know this. Every anymore. single person. In really? fact, I, I bet you you will get comment, comments. People really? will call in and send you texts about Grain Chill. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Grain uh, Chill. This next one was I'd never heard of and was bizarre. Cheggers plays pop. Keith Chegwin. Okay, yes. so that's like Cheggers. Cheggers. He's Keith Cheggers. Chegwin. He was he did the pop show for the kids. Oh, this is for the kids. It's for the kids. So it's yeah. like American bandstand. Yeah. Great. This is like a. This could be like a television song. Totally. It's a kind of a pretty kick-ass riff. And you had two groups of kids, one on each side of the audience, swaying, swaying, and then they would also vote on what song they liked the best in the charts. Okay. And, and he would jump in. He was very jumpy. He had, you know, his hairstyle. Here he comes, doing his funny dance. Did he always do that? Always. Once again, two place. Okay, there's no way that guy's still alive. He's sadly not. I, how did I know? He's sadly not. I just knew. Was it an overdose? No, I think he just got he old just, and sad. Oh, we can't get old. Oh, this no. is like the 80s. It wasn't no? very long. He died quite recently. Keith Chegwin? It, it was a big deal. Was it? The Guardian gave him a full page obit. Wow. Ah. So he's a part of your childhood. Oh, absolutely. Again. Oh, look at him. He looks great. Yeah. Hey, he died 2017. I know. I told you recently. Sir Keith Chegwin. Yeah, no, I know. He, was, he wasn't a sir. Should have been. He was robbed. Yeah, check so his pop. What would happen when the pop was playing? Kids Just would dancing? Vote. There was, was dancing. It a dance show? No, no. Like kids bands would... wouldn't perform the pop. No, it was more like a kind of countdown billboard show, and okay. kids would vote on the songs that they liked the best. There was kids on the left and kids on the right, and they would do various. It was fun and wacky, okay. and you know. After now, this school. next one is close to your heart and your family, I understand. Will Will <laughs> Brits know this show? Oh, absolutely. This is Bagpuss. So this is for the younger listeners. 
Okay, so this is like a Mr. Rogers set? Yeah, much more surreal and strange. It's, Very strange. Was it a stop motion? Yes. The bony this is my uncle. This is your uncle This is singing. my uncle who did all of the, composed all the songs and music for Bagpuss, which has been voted the best British kids TV show of all time. To watch on drugs. Yeah. And he played a toad called Gabriel, and that was my that's my aunt singing. I thought that was you for a second. <laughs> I'm not that old. And, uh, <laughs> it was about the life of a very strange cat who had dreams. Oh, that's Bagpuss. Cat Bagpuss, yes. Who had and dreams. He had dreams based on the animal friends who lived. And was the whole show done in this stop motion animation yes, style? Yes, yes. Uh, and and your, iconic, uncle wrote, my uncle your uncle wrote, was a folk musician of note in the UK. Yes, in is, Ireland. Was in Ireland. In Ireland. Yeah, he's, he's lived in Ireland for most of his life. He is John Faulkner. Yes, he's well known in some parts and certainly well known for um, for Bagpuss. Wow, okay. Yeah. And then just a quick one, because I'd never heard of this, and I asked you to cite a few American shows that you reacted to. I had no idea there was something called The Kids from Fame. Did I? Is that real? Did I? Did I get the title wrong? No, that is real. Based on the movie. But that wasn't a show. That was like a touring act. No. There was a, what was the TV show called? There was Fame the Movie. Yeah. And then there was a TV show. Hmm. I'm sure there was. There was a touring act that I saw live. I went to the Royal Albert Hall to see them. Well, the Kids from Fame was a touring act and a recording act. Yes. And Uh, I had their Fame the TV show, yes, ran on NBC from 82 to 87. Yeah. That's probably what you're referring to. Yeah. So Kids from Fame was like... A thing. It was a thing. I went to see them live. But this live. one is the kids from the movie. Yes. So this is the kids from the movie, and I went to see them live. I'm, well, I think I'm probably thinking of the TV show as well. The, t- the TV show started in 82. So I, that was a huge thing. This yeah. is my introduction to American culture. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, so your three shows that you submitted were Kids <laughs> from Fame, Roseanne, and, and Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. That kind of covers it. It I does, mean, doesn't it? Yeah, that's, that's very you. So that's what I was watching in North London. I just want to end with one... One thing, because oh, I... I <laughs> I'm glad you have an ending, because I don't have I, one. Well, I have one thing that I'd like to share, which okay. is that there's a um, there's a blog called Cardigans and Cravats. <laughs> this has to be your blog. It's not my blog, I promise. Are you sure? I'm absolutely Are sure. you sure you don't sleepwalk at night and write that? Because no, I can't think of I a think more... I think I might have to submit some sort what of is essay. It? It's, a, it's a fashion in response to films oh blog. It's God. amazing. This is, these are just visual images from classic films? Yes. The one I enjoyed mm-hmm. um, in response to how to dress like Harold and Maud yes. encouraged <laughs> us to wear, and I quote, floral prints, structured corduroy and tweed, and pops of yellow. Mm. That was my favorite bit. <laughs> pops of yellow. That really is. And I really, I'm, I'm regretting that I haven't bought you any pops of yellow That's today, the detail Jess. that makes it. It is. Her yes. yellow raincoat, her yellow umbrella, the yellow fire hydrant. There's lots of pops of yellow. So they're right. So I think we need to, you know, from now on, consult cardigans and cravats. I'm definitely going to consult it. By the way, I have a gift for you for appearing on the pod, which you you probably already have. What? Uh, I got you a Harold Loves Maud button from Etsy. (laughs) You probably have many of those. But I have buttons, but I have, this can be added to my amazing collection of Harold and Maud buttons. Well, don't be too excited because I'm hopeful that it's out on the ledge when we 
emerge from the room. Um, That's so wonderful. I I had the, I paid extra for the shipping so that it would get here today. (laughs) Well, and I brought you a button, but it's not here. Oh, did you though? Yes, I did. Did you really? Did I really? I dug it out, but it can go on my tote bag. Well, actually it would be fitting then if your button didn't show up and then I just have to see you again in order to give it to you. And I can add it to my, to my, one of my many tote bags. Keep calm and vote. Oh, Uh, we didn't even get into how you're my favorite uh, (laughs) online social media sparring partner. Because well, I, Bex is what the kids call part of the Wokarati. <laughs> and she has innumerable, amazing dedication to political causes. I, do. I don't know how you find the time. I'm very tired. But you you walk it like you talk it, Bex. That's I an do. impressive thing. I'm more of like the cynical curmudgeon type who just <laughs> sort of like chooses to hang back and cynically cast aspersions from right. my lofty tower, whereas you're actually I'm literally out, out in the streets. I'm out in the streets. You are literally out in the streets. I'm out in the streets fighting so the good fight. It's more true. power to you. Well, thank, thank you. you. And I have a big collection of tote bags to prove you it. You do. Because, as again I said, you are my favorite champagne socialist. So, Bex, thank, thank you, you so much for coming on to the pod. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll do it again. I've loved it. Okay. And I would love to come back. 